Hello and welcome to episode 88 of Africa Past and Present, the podcast about African history, culture, and politics. I'm your host, Peter Legge. My co-host, Peter Lim, is away. This is the first episode in a multi-part series on digital humanities and social sciences in the field of African studies. In the series, we interview colleagues active in the field of digital scholarship and ask them to share insights based on practical experiences working with information technology in their Africa courses, their research, and in their public engagement. We'll call it DH Africa. We begin with Dr. Keith Breckenridge, an historian based at the Witts Institute for Social and Economic Research at the University of the Witwatersrand in Johannesburg, South Africa. Dr. Breckenridge's active interest in the scholarly potential of the internet dates back to the early 1990s. From 2003, he directed the major in internet studies at the University of KwaZulu-Natal, and he now manages the Wiser website. He is the author of a brand new book titled Biometric State, The Global Politics of Identification and Surveillance in South Africa, 1850 to the Present, published by Cambridge University Press in 2014. Dr. Breckenridge has written widely on the cultural and economic history of South Africa in journals like the Journal of African History, Journal of Southern African Studies, Comparative Studies in Society and History, and others. He's also the editor with Simon Sretter of Registration and Recognition, Documenting the Person in World History, which came out with Oxford University Press in 2012. The interview we did was conducted at the African Studies in a Digital Age workshop at the University of Michigan's African Studies Center, which Dr. Breckenridge co-organized with Professor Derek Peterson. The workshop was the second installment of the program, Joining Theory and Empiricism in the Remaking of the African Humanities, a transcontinental collaboration. This is a five-year interdisciplinary project funded by the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation. Welcome. Thank you. So we are recording this interview at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, that school down the road from us, where there is a very interesting workshop taking place that I'm also participating in, uh, run by the African Studies Center here at the University of Michigan in collaboration with the uh, University of the Witwatersrand, particularly the Institute for Social and Economic Research there, WISER, and Keith uh, Breckenridge is an organizer of the workshop. And this is a fascinating venue that brings together international scholars in different disciplines, digital history, digital humanities, archives, and so on. Uh, from your expert perspective, uh, what is the state of digital Southern African studies? What are the most pressing issues also facing digital scholars in South Africa today? Um, I think the key thing, thank you very much, Peter. The, I mean, if you asked me this question 10 years ago, there were people writing about this who said, that essentially there's a kind of digital stampede underway in South Africa in which uh, international institutions and entrepreneurs were, were digitizing content and making it available in many different places. Since 2009, I think the pace of digitization has essentially almost collapsed. So there's a very good project, and I'm sure your audience 
you know, if they don't know about it, they should look at it. It's called African Journals Online, funded by the Carnegie uh, Foundation. And I think it's being done out of Rhodes, out of the library at Rhodes. And that does long running series of African journals, not just South African. So there are all sorts of other journals in there. There's about 200 journals being done. That's a fantastic project. But other than that, there are isolated endeavors of, of digitization taking place, but there's otherwise very little. So there's no, none of the sort of newspaper runs that you see here or, I mean, my big complaint is that our parliamentary records are not digitized. So we have Hansard is available in individual Word files, but you can't search them. They're not hypertextual. Uh, it's really very, very, it's a serious problem. Uh, and it compares very badly, not only with our past, so five years ago, 10 years ago, even under apartheid, things were much more innovative. Uh, compares very badly with other African countries. So the Kenyan Hansard is online. You can search by subject. You can search by parliamentary representative. Ours is not. So we are, I would say this, this, there are very serious problems of funding. There's problems of, there are political problems. People associate digitization with what people call in cultural imperialism. Um, there, are, there are problems of institutional capacity. There's no technical, really very little technical ability to extract texts now from scanned documents. We really need to address it in, a, in an energetic way. How much do you think this is a technological problem versus a political problem, this, this uh, limited interest in digitization of key documents such as the parliamentary records, uh, the Hansard? Well, it's all sorts of things. I mean, there are many different reasons why this is taking place. I mean, Hansard is a good case in point. It's not celebratory. You can't take Hansard and say, look at the wonderful achievement of Hansard. Look at, look at the testimony. It's not like George Washington or, or even Nelson Mandela in the records. The people that are in our Hansard are mostly you know, disagreeable, at the, very least, the best you can say about them. But that doesn't mean that what they said isn't terribly important for people understanding, ordinary citizens, to try and understand what's happening in, in the country today. So the real problem is that the state doesn't... There are many different reasons. Partly, the, the constitutional order is a very ambitious one. So if you're going to digitize Hansard today and make it available on the internet, there's a lot of pressure to do that in 11 languages. So that means that is a constitutional requirement. So you then have faced the problem that the state just says, literally, we can't go near this. We don't have the resources to touch it. So there's a, that paradox. Um, there's the paradox of many people thinking that record keeping, that the apartheid state was this, this kind of uh, Germanic Prussian endeavor that you know, kept excellent records and tracked everybody. I think that's a powerful, it's a powerful myth. It's a powerful and a, and a wrong understanding, really, of what the apartheid state was like. That people associate that kind of activity with with the with a previous racist regime. Um, we have done a terrible job, and I'm talking about historians here, of explaining why democracy and popular representation hinges on making the bureaucrats document what they do properly, making the elected representatives record their their work and and making that available very widely. If we don't do that, we really don't have a democracy. We have something else altogether. Some strange situation where the all the people being paid by the state can more or less do what they want without actually documenting it. And it's very hard to, to, to engage that in a way that's um, about holding them to account. And beyond digitization efforts, uh, uh, what's your sense of the extent to which digital approaches, methods, tools, sources have been incorporated into South African university curricula 
uh, and modus operandi? I mean, is there an attempt to incorporate even social media uh, like Twitter or Facebook or YouTube, which I know are firewalled in many South African universities? Mm, it's um, much better now. I mean, the, we had a terrible problem before the new undersea cables came online in 2009. There was a tremendously limited, you know, you, you, you've experienced this, those, those university pipes were very thin and they were always jammed. So it wasn't just that YouTube and, and Facebook were blocked. It was more that there was literally no excess capacity to get access to them. Things are much better now. So Tenet, which is the university network, is, has much more capacity. In general, I think people make it, I think YouTube is very widely used because the, you know, the, the videos that are in YouTube are tremendously helpful for instruction purposes. The, I, I think the, the media studies departments work hard on on both teaching and researching um, social media. The ones at WITS certainly do, and I've had some work to something to do with the, some of the others. Um, you know, I can't go through every department, but I'd say that in general, there's a lot of interest actually in the, in the social that is online, and people are researching it very widely. We did try and teach for a long time at UKZN, the CHNM tools in particular, the Center for History and New Media, George Mason, offer a tool called Zotero, which I'm sure people do use. And we used to teach that quite intensively to undergraduates, and they made a lot of use of it. I don't think that's actually happening. I think there are people at, U at the University of Johannesburg who do some of that, um, probably more to graduate students, and there's some people at uh, Stellenbosch where they try. But mostly that kind of tools-based digital humanities is uh, it's very episodic. There's no, there's no well-organized or continuous investment in those tools. And we're just starting in this country, in the United States, uh, to do this. And there are a lot of colleagues across the disciplines who are quite skeptical <laughs> of deploying these. Uh, shifting a little bit to uh, digital projects based on partnerships, particularly between South Africans and foreign scholars and institutions, including Americans, uh, we've seen that they've been fraught with problems in the past. There have been some success stories as well. And you've published a recent article in the Journal of Southern African Studies on the Disa Aluka debacle. Uh, can you briefly describe this somewhat catastrophic partnership and tell us how it has impacted the willingness and the capacity of South Africans to work with foreigners on digital humanities projects in more productive, more equitable ways? So the, I mean, South Africa began in, in the immediate post-apartheid period. So after 95, South Africa was very precocious in its, in its adoption of digitization. So the DISA project was funded by the Mellon Foundation um, to undertake the, the scanning and the publication of what we would call the struggle materials. So if you go to www.deza.ukzn.ac.za, you'll find an archive there of most of, for example, the ANC's periodicals, you know, things that were inside the country, uh, New Nation, there are many others. It's a tremendously valuable collection Absolutely. that tracks the, the the way that people on in the opposition were talking about key issues, many, many issues. There's hardly anything actually that isn't is of some moment um, that's it, that isn't in that archive. And then what happened in 2003, so that development was taking place basically at the same time as JSTOR was starting to develop. And in 2003, the two projects kind of crossed each other. So the DISA was funded by Mellon to produce content for Aluka. Uh, and Aluka is, became a kind of a special collection within the, the broader stable of digital holdings that, was, that we think of as belonging to JSTOR today. 
and it, the project in short was really it was very it went very badly wrong um, very little content was produced very little of the money was spent there's a, a tremendous amount of acrimony between the partners the south africans and the, and the american partners and i think there, there are many different reasons some of it had to do with licensing so for the the politics of licensing so the condition really of the funding for the south african partners was that they would make their content freely available to to the u.s repositories and i mean for example one of the things that, that was key in precipitating the anxiety in south africa was there was no reciprocation so there are a lot of holdings in the united states and in britain which are not replicated in south africa we don't have for example the, the same records there at rhodes house northwestern has a really excellent southern african studies collection it would have been quite easy to design the project at the beginning in a way that said we will rep repatriate or make available materials that are sitting in these excellent South African studies uh, collections in the United States. That did not happen. So the South Africans were told they must provide their content pretty much freely, not pretty much, freely to the U.S. repositories, and there was no uh, reciprocal. And that essentially triggered an argument about uh, of what people call digital imperialism. So many of the participants on the South African side began to argue that what was happening was that the South Africans were essentially producing content for that would be much more much easier for Americans to get access to than it would be for South Africans. In, in addition to that, uh, American researchers who were using DISA, like myself at the time, not at an institution that could afford the very high fees that JSTOR charges, suddenly saw that content disappear. Yeah. There was a long period of time where we couldn't get access to any of that because it had been migrated behind paywalls uh, in the in the JSTOR I th I th I stable. Think, I mean, J DISA, to, to, to its credit, does try and retain i mean they have kept most of the content they provided to luca is freely available in through DISA, much of it not all of it there's some really valuable collections that are not for example the race relations reports which are in a tremendously valuable archive that if anyone's researching south africa that continuous big these are big fat reports that were produced every year they summarize legislation the main political crises you know health issues they're very powerful those are not available in DISA. they're only available through luca but the fundamental problem really is DISA is an unresourced archive. There's yeah, no absolutely. money behind it. So, and whereas JSTOR has, I don't know, 5,000, I do know, but I, there are many thousands of libraries sub contributing to the maintenance of JSTOR. Yeah. Uh, that means that J, the JSTOR collection, you know, it's future-proof. It's going to be fine forever. DISA has no patron. There is no one to look after it. There's no one in South Africa that will t ultimately look after this collection there's a real risk that it literally go up in smoke and we will lose all of that material, the open access materials on the struggle history. And that kind of captures the crisis, if you like. There's really, South Africans have relied on essentially American benefactors, grants in order to make these projects work and, and local institutions are just not dealing with having, you know, taking responsibility for the process of digitization. And the contrast with the University of Michigan is really stark. Where you know the whole this in many respects the energy behind scholarly digitization in the United States is being driven by the university here, both through the scanning of books, but in you know infrastructures are also being paid for by the university. No university in South Africa is prepared to do that, and that is there are all sorts of reasons why that is. But one of the main ones is they rely on outside funders in order to make all of this stuff happen. And we really need, and we have resources. We have a lot of institutional capacity we need to just be a bit more grown up about it in the united states of course 
not every university is as well endowed as the University of Michigan. You know, at Michigan State, we rely a lot on outside funding and and grants uh, that we apply and compete against a growing number of of people who are getting in the game. It's very tough. Uh, But the private sector in the United States, Mellon as a philanthropic uh, aspect of that is is very, very prevalent. And I don't see that in South Africa in in the same way. Is that a possibility in the future, you think, of more private sector involvement? Or is that something that doesn't fly in the the Mm, South African university system? Well, you know, Google does some things, but but they tend to be they're trophy projects like the digitization of the Mandela and the Tutu collections. Um, you know the the sort of thing we want. What I mean, the most valuable thing would be a, one of the one of the newspapers, which runs from say 1905 or a little earlier, if we could find one, to digitize that and run it right through the period. Now in the U.S. and in Britain, that tip is often undertaken by either the newspaper, so the New York Times would undertake it, or by one of these commercial uh, research companies. And there's not a lot of sign of that happening in South Africa at the moment. No one's really providing to libraries, and partly because the libraries don't have the budgets to, to fund in, in the long run those research tools, which means we go back to Hansard again. I mean, Hansard really is key. We have got to get it digitized. We've got to find a way to do it. Well, let's switch gears and, and talk about your new book, Biometric State, the Global Politics of Identification and Surveillance in South Africa, 1850 to Present, just came out with Cambridge University Press. And when I was coming down here, I was happy to see that our library catalog has it uh, ordered, but it's not on the shelves yet. That's how fresh it is. Um, but you know, y- your work has spoken to the issue of total information systems, for example, under uh, former Prime Minister uh, Fulford. Uh, you've written about apartheid's panoptic fantasy, this, this system of sort of universal centralized registration and control of all African adults through the passbook and, and other mechanisms. But you've also shown that these panoptic fantasies failed ultimately, uh, and that their failure led to a harsher police state that was less efficient than its paper-based or analog predecessor. Um, can you speak a little bit about this, this uh, fascinating history of, of the biometric state? Of course, I can speak about it for a great an enormous amount of time, but I probably shouldn't. You know, I mean, the point of this book is to show that South Africa has been, as, as, has been a place where people who have an interest in coercive systems of fingerprint identification could experiment uh, with large schemes over the course of a century. So it starts with Galton in the 1850s, who is, uh, in in the book I I recover the South African Galton. And Galton is a very important figure in the history of eugenics, in the history of statistics. And part of what I'm doing is I'm saying uh, it's it's this, his ex, his familiarity and his experience in South Africa that provides him with the vocabulary and the and the and the political and racial arguments that he then uses for from the 1850s on. The book looks at each of these attempts to try and make biometric systems work, and most of them they fail. You know they fail pretty, they fall down pretty spectacularly. There are a couple that work as they're intended. The one that was directed at Indians in, in 1906 or 1907 really does get a grip on, on all Indians in South Africa. They're meticulously surveyed by the state, uh, and that affects their lives. It means the Indian population in South Africa, is, it, it doesn't grow by migration. 
it has and people feel a tremendous sense of being surveyed by the state through the whole of the 20th yes, century. It's no coincidence, this is the time that Gandhi is in South Africa that's and, exactly and develops right. Satyagraha. So that story really is about Gandhi, Gandhi's ambiguous involvement, because Gandhi's also an advocate of these biometric systems. So initially he says, well, he's like a volunteer bureaucrat. He's trying to figure out ways to be very helpful to the state. And he suggests, actually, that compulsory, he's the first person to suggest compulsory fingerprinting in South Africa, which he gets from the history of, of fingerprinting in, in India. You know, he says, well, but then he quickly realizes that, in fact, well, not quickly, over the course of a few years, he realizes that, in fact, the state intends to target Indians only. And he fights, he tries to fight very energetically against the state. Some, to, to some degree, he wins, and then he reverses course. And unfortunately, that, that pretty much destroys his political project. And it's out of that defeat that he, that he builds the argument of Satyagraha. It's, a, it's an argument of, about, uh, essentially, calling on the fanatical, the really serious opponents of the state to form a political movement. It's very different from what he'd argued for before. Uh, and then in the, the book tracks it through apartheid, you've described in, in many ways what the Bavais Bureau, which is for Wood's mm -hmm. project of identifying all Africans, how it, how it, how it worked and how badly really it functioned. It had fallen to pieces by the end of the 1950s. It certainly it didn't meet the original project plan. But the last chapters of the book look at how a real paradox, which is that this system of fingerprint identification begins, builds the basis for the post-apartheid welfare state. So you end up with a grant system in South Africa. I'm sure people in the audience know this, but nearly half the, the population in South Africa is mm -hmm. now receiving monthly cash grants, which in global terms are very generous grants. They're really large amounts of money. Um, and those things are delivered biometrically. There's enormous amount of controversy around the biometric tender, the technologies and the companies, the privatization process. Mm -hmm. But there's no question that this really is the one great benefit of the post-apartheid political order. And it's a tremendous irony that that comes from this Bavais Bureau project, that the, the desire to fingerprint everybody ultimately produces this, what is in many respects the opposite, not an order of control, but an order of welfare, which is about providing people with the means to live, which they wouldn't otherwise have. There are no which a lot of people options. depend on. An enormous number of people now. I mean, Almost it makes entirely. the difference between life and death. And it certainly makes a huge difference to the, to, the, to the basic life of children who are now receiving money that is mostly spent on food. And some would argue this is also a great source of political patronage of course and, it is. and support because well, with dependency comes uh, I, I don't a actually bit of think, voter, I think that in many ways no? the biometric system makes it quite hard for the end. It's not like the Indian system was where you know, individual ward councillors can say, I'll give you a grant if, you, if, I, if you're a conspicuous supporter. This biometric system is delivered universally. Everybody gets it. And it's very hard, actually, for people to be... No, no, but I'm saying as, as, a, as a sign of success, of delivery, uh, which, which, of course, well, that's the, in the, the, the South African government big, struggles yeah. with quite a bit in a number of areas otherwise. And no? the EFF, I don't know if people noticed this in the election, but one of the things they were saying, you know, is immediate doubling of all grants as one of their key strategies. So that the opposition have been forced to acknowledge that for most people, the grant system is a tremendous benefit. I should say the book argues, and a, big, a significant part of the book is to show that this model of biometric government has spread is spreading from South Africa to Brazil and to Mexico and to India and to Pakistan and Nigeria, Ghana, and many countries that are adopting exactly the same. Ironically, a form of governance that's derived from the apartheid state is spreading all around the former imperial these former colonies. Um, and it's strongly related to the fact that the colonial state just didn't, didn't want to do the work of providing people with basic forms of identification. So biometrics becomes a remedy for that. 
Now, given the enormous technological capacity of today's biometric surveillance states, not just South Africa, of course, but we're sitting here in, in probably the most powerful national security state in the entire world, the United States, and I, I know you're going to the airport and you'd like to leave the country, so I'm not going to compromise you terribly. What kind of questions does your research raise about both the effectiveness of contemporary technologies and these architectures of spying and control, but also the ability to resist them, to oppose them, to subvert them. And here I'm thinking of things like WikiLeaks, Anonymous, Edward Snowden, and so on. Sure. Um, you know, some of this is in the last chapter in the book. The US government is by far the most important technological agent in the evolution of biometric systems today. So it's the, it's, it's the US Defense Department and Homeland Security that are developing these standardized ways of tracking people's identity, and they're spending a lot of money on it. Uh, some of this is similar to the Apartheid Project. It's a kind of fantasy of control that can't really actually be implemented. And I show you know, that the technology doesn't match the rhetoric. Um, the other thing that the book really looks at is why it is that biometric registration only works in the colonial world. Why is it that we don't have full-scale biometric identification in Britain or in Italy or in, in, in Germany? You do, people do use biometrics, but they're what we call one-to-one -one matching. So you're not, you're not entering your fingerprints into a national database that would allow the police to take a piece of your fingerprint and identify you. It's a much more limited thing. It's not like what we have in India or in South Africa. And the reason really is partly that literacy and writing is a major part of respectability in these Anglophone colonies. So the idea is I say who I am, I can, I can write it down. Mm -hmm. The other is that people associate what we, marking of the body with abjection, with slavery, and with, the, with, with being a colonial subject. So you're branding somebody, you're clipping their ears, or, or writing their name, or, or uh, tattoos on their faces. That's associated with form, colonial forms of government. And fingerprinting is a logical extension in, uh, in cultural terms. It's a logical extension of those markings of the body. The main, the politically most important thing, though, is the engineers in the United States and in Europe. They highlight what we call man-in-the-middle attacks and the breakdowns of the system, how, many, how much error there is in a normal biometric system. And that makes it very difficult politically to sell biometrics. The engineers intervene in the political debate. For example, the American ACLS, the Council for Learned Societies, have published a report that pretty much says biometric systems are, are not reliable. You can't use them. Those same engineers, when they go to India or South Africa or Malawi, or, they say, well, you know, given what Malawians have got, biometrics would be much better. So you end up with an argument driven in part by the fact that the weaknesses of colonial government have, mean that Africans tend to have to, Africans and other people in the third world are being forced to accept a system of very powerful surveillance, um, and, and those those things would be considered intolerable in, in in the United States or in England. So you know the British ID system collapsed, and most of it it collapsed under the weight of the attacks of of engineers. I can name them if you like, but we don't have to do that. Well, it seems to me that the Europeans are a little more forceful in trying to defend uh, their privacy, at least in theory. Uh, in the United States, there seems to be an awkward reluctance. Uh, well, to there's fight. still there's no you know people have proposed biometric national identity card for the United States. It won't fly, and one of the things is people are suspicious of the state. They're suspicious of the bureaucrats who have access, would have access to the database, be able to use their access in, in ways that probably could either be political or it could just be straightforward criminality. The, the, the great example of why this doesn't work, I mean, in Britain, the bureaucrats take the national database on a CD-ROM, 
leave it on the bus. You know, and that, that makes for enormous popular hilarity. People are tremendously amused at how stupid the bureaucracy is. Those arguments don't fly well in the colonial world for all sorts of reasons. Well, I'm afraid we, we could go on for we hours <laughs> here. We're just skimming the surface and, and we're running out of time. And I know you're flying back to South Africa. Uh, I'd like to thank you for sharing your insights on uh, digital Southern African studies and also uh, illustrating why we need to read your biometric state and, and digest many of its lessons. Uh, thank you very much for joining Africa Past and Present. Thank you, Peter. Africa Past and Present is a co-production of Matrix, the Center for Digital Humanities and Social Sciences, and the Department of History at Michigan State University. Technical assistance is provided by the Matrix Digital Media Lab. For more information and to subscribe to the podcast, visit our website at afropod.aodl.org. The podcast is also available on iTunes. You can also send us email at africa.podcast at matrix.msu.edu. Thanks for listening.